it's working and we're live hey welcome everybody uh this is where jill and deb yo this deb uh usually welcome you to humor grace and grief and jill is out doing something she's at another conference presenting and i am here with Deborah Price. Uh, do you like to go by Deb? It says Deb on there. So yeah. Deb Price. Okay. Uh, you know, Deb and I have uh, just been friends since we met each other in AATH, Association for Applied and Therapeutic Humor. Yep. You're also part of World Laughter Tour, right? I was, yeah. You were, right. Mm -hmm. But you, you grew up in all these humor things. Yes. And then just recently, her and Jill presented at a humor conference dealing with uh, Jill's part was intimacy in the death and dying process. And yours was talking about saying out loud what happens when you die and plans you need to make. And look, here's her book, Love's Last App. Pretty cool, huh? And <laughs> So, Deb, what I'm going to do while we're here, as I reach down and I get on my other Facebook thing just to see who's doing what, um, I'm going to ask you all about, actually, before I ask you, I'm going to start at the end of the book because oh, yeah, let's start, start at the end because we're talking about death and dying. Okay. It says... You envision growing a peaceful death revolution in which we all make our own fully informed choices as we contemplate and prepare for our inevitable death. Deb, this is great. How did you get into this? Tell me more, as they say. <laughs> well, um, most people would say that I'm not very much of a radical person, but the older I get, the bolder I get. And um, as I have aged in my nursing career, I started as a pediatrics nurse a long, long time ago. And then I got my master's in gerontology because I was aging and I wanted to know more about how I would age. And that led me not only to being an oncology nurse, but also a hospice and palliative care nurse. And now I want, quote, my generation of the boomers to really take charge in a way that we have always taken charge. We, we changed everything because we were such a huge generation. Um, now I think it's time we changed, that we, that we change how we die. I like to be in control and I'd rather not cede that control to the medical community as much as I love healthcare as a nurse, that's my milieu, but I want, I want it to be my way and not the medical way because in the end, we're all going to die. Even if we do all sorts of things, we can keep people alive pretty much for a long, long time. So that's not, the, that's not the life I want. I want to be able to talk with you and I want to be able to eat and drink with you and celebrate. And if I can't do that, then I'd rather die. And so that's what I want us to 
to all understand so that we can take the control back. So when you say you don't want a medical way of dying, what do you mean? Um, I, I spent half of my nursing career in clinical research and, um, and I loved it. And we're, we are so reliant on the participants in research studies who agree, you know, first we tell you, you have a life-threatening illness. Would you like to participate in a clinical trial? It may not benefit you, but the work that you do with us might benefit others who come behind you. I think that's heroic when people do that. Um, and, and so I, I love that aspect of it. But often we don't want to tell the entire truth about medical conditions, what we're really talking about when we're talking about mm -hmm. therapy, immunotherapy, all of the different therapies that we can give you of what you're actually going to be put through. Mm -hmm. And you know what what we're going to expect of you during that time. Um, we don't have statistics on on the effect of some um, interventions on older adults because the clinical trials were done on people in their 40s and 50s. Well, if you're beyond that, if you're 60s or 70s, mm -hmm. we've got nothing really, honestly. To, to talk to you about. We've got statistics of people who are much younger. Well, if we give you, oh yeah, you know, you've got a you've got a 50-50 chance based on what? Based on the cohort that we studied, we don't have numbers for people who are 71. We don't know. But right. we're gonna so we're gonna quote you the the numbers that we have. Um, and then and then we're gonna you know, cross our fingers, yeah. hope for the best. So, so I, interesting. I want it to be. I want it to be much more honest between healthcare professionals who really want. I don't. You know, as a nurse, as you're a nurse, you want to help. Right. Right. I want to make you feel better. And look, I've got this medicine. It could make you feel better. It also could make you really, really sick. Um, and mm -hmm. it's not going to save your life. It will prolong your life. But actually, I think in some cases, it's going to prolong your death instead. It's going Got to, it. I'd rather live a shorter life, but live it fully. Than, you, know, you know, that's, a lot of people think about that. And then when you're genuinely faced, genuinely faced with stuff, like I know a few people, not a lot, that are in their stage four plus cancer. Right. And one has since passed. That would be my cousin, Daryl's cousin. And it was so sacred to me that he included Daryl and I in the details. And in those details, because he lives in California, he was able to um get interviewed and everything what they do for it's not assisted suicide but he is given when the tools how to and he'll know when it's the end mm -hmm. and how humane that was he made all the arrangements for everything he even went to a body farm 
you know, he donated it to a body farm where they get to, you know, see how long bugs take to, I don't know, I'm making this right. up, but basically, and how interesting and how beautiful he took control the way he wanted it and his family went along with it. And to share those details with Daryl and I just meant everything to us and sort of influenced and affirmed some things that I even learned about, you know, I only have this much time. What am I going to do with it? Exactly. And um, my friend, I reposted something. He said uh, he lives in Louisiana and I quoted him, Jimmy. And I said, I love that. We just rent this body really. Right. So I, I got to commend you for this. I, I wanted to ask you another question. So what made you want to write a book? Well, um, I love to write. I've, I've written poetry for pretty much all my life, I've written short stories. Um, but um, at the AATH conference um, with my good friend and your good friend, Cheryl Fell, we were in a, a post session with Kelly Simmons, who is a book coach and has written her own book um, and, uh, and a book editor. And in the, in the Q&A, Cheryl mentioned to, the, to all of us gathered there that she, was, she felt called to write a second book. She's already written her first book um, about the sunny side up, which is just wonderful, cheerful um, information. But she said, this time I'm called to write about hospice and palliative care. And I nearly fell out of my chair because I felt like that was, that was a calling for me too. And so um, it took me several weeks to gin up my courage to ask Cheryl, Cheryl, have you ever thought of being having a co-author? <laughs> Can we do this together? And she said, yes. So that got me started. And then as the, the weeks and months, um, actually in the months before COVID and then when COVID hit, we were writing away and then Cheryl decided that she really needed to focus on her family business um, because they were and they were an essential business during COVID. So, and then she gave me permission to just go ahead, keep going. And so by that time I was just um, having so much enjoyment out of getting my voice out there. And also I wanted to showcase some of the other authors who had published books ahead of mine who are mm-hmm. experts in the field, Dr. Gawande, I think his book on being mortal um, should be required reading for everyone who's going to die, which is pretty much everybody. So yeah, you know, that book dying. Yeah. yeah. So um, he, um, and I, I really like his approach. He's very honest with his, um, with his, clients and and the people that he um, serves. So um, I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm, I just have to get this off my chest. So um, I, I decided AATH, thank goodness for AATH because AATH made me who I am today. (laughs) Right. Uh, Kathy Keaton. Hi, Kathy. 
I sent her a bottle of chocolate wine. I recommend to everybody, Wildwood Cellars, not put, not pushing anything though. Um, but something else you wrote in here that I just, another part is how you started the book. And you started the book with, uh, before we talk about dying, <laughs> let's talk about living because and living well. So I want to ask you as you were writing, what are some of like name three key points, if you don't mind, like what is it about living well that helps you in making decisions about dying? Does go ahead. Well, um, since I, I put you on the spot. No, no, I'm, um, <laughs> that's an excellent question. And um, I, uh, I live in a, in a community that is based on wellness. And I think that all of us really do need to focus on, we are in charge of our bodies and our minds. Uh, and there's so much we can do um, to be as healthy as we possibly can be, both in body, mind, and spirit. But we have mm -hmm. to actually think about it and make conscious choices um, you know, um, yes, I would like to have my my two my two favorite food groups, um, basically coffee and chocolate. Um, and I, you know, I would love to live on just that, <laughs> but that would not keep me healthy for very long. I think when I turn eighty, I might just you know sway switch in over. Direction. Sure. Yeah. Um, eat dessert first, and then I'll see if I want the veggies later. But um, but really focusing on I, especially in aging, I want to keep moving. And because if you, if you, you know, if you sit, if you rest, you start rusting and I, I don't want to have creaky joints. And so um, walking in my community and going to our wellness classes, which are, you know, everything from cardio dance moves to a spin bike wow. class. Those types of things, it's, um, those are the things left to my own devices. I would, I would, I'm a closet exerciser, so I spend 20 minutes in the closet. But no, 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 now I go to a, a class that's, that's an hour. Mm -hmm. But for me, it's social. All the, other, all the other gals and guys who are there are trying to do exactly what I'm trying to do of kind of um, age is just a number and mine is unlisted type of thing. No, age is, I'm going to be 69 on Tuesday and I hope that I'm going to be 89 in 20 years, but I don't think that I'll get to 89 if I don't take care of this. Mm -hmm. So, so those are the conscious choices that I'm making now. And mm -hmm. then part of my conscious choices is, okay, what if, what if I get diagnosed? Um, Mm -hmm. with something you know mm -hmm. and not what if it's when when i get mm -hmm. diagnosed with a life-threatening illness how am i going to approach that mm -hmm. um for me because i've spent half of my career in clinical research i may depending on the diagnosis what particular part of my body is going awry i may um, participate in a clinical trial um, knowing that when it gets too much if it gets too much, I can bow out of that trial and then um, seek hospice or palliative care. Um, I do intend to um, live as long as possible 
but in a very cheerful state. And if I have the um, golden opportunity, I do plan on having a, a wonderful farewell party where everybody wears. I love it. I love it. And sponge noses are, are the essential wardrobe. And just, you know, tell me, tell me your favorite joke. Tell me funny stories. Um, let's laugh. Let's laugh. And so that when, when I do shift to the next room, beyond mm -hmm. the veil, wherever, mm -hmm. or however you want to describe it, um, then uh, I hope that people remember laughter through tears is one of my favorite emotions. And so I want to make very happy memories because I have, I've had a life that I never was supposed to have. And so, you know, I was born three months premature at weighed in in 1952 at two pounds. And wow. So they, you know, they didn't expect me to live. Well, I've had one, one wonderful ride. One joy ride. I it's love it. Truly, I love it. Truly a joy ride. So that's, so I think about all of those things. And of course my family is going, Debbie, talk about death every single day. Well, yeah. because I want it to be part of the conversation because it is part of the conversation. We start planning our kids' lives from the moment of conception. So right. when we stop before death, wait a second, let's, let's talk about it because it's a natural thing and it will happen, but I want it to happen the way you want it to happen, not the way we think right. it should go. Right. You know, I, I, as I was reading more in your book and I, as I'm looking at some of my notes, it, hospice, people have a lot of misconceptions and expectations in hospice. And that, as I read in some of the grief groups, why isn't, I mean, the nurses like myself jump in and say, hey, you got to call the nurse. We can't give you that information because, you know, Facebook police, well, I might write them privately and say a few things. Right. But, you know, what are some of the misconceptions of hospice and what can you expect from hospice? Can you talk about that in a about a five minute time. I'm curious. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Even though I've been a hospice nurse and I work with hospice stuff, yeah, you talk about it. <laughs> yes, well, um, I think that people think hospice is um, when it's you're right at death's door. Like, no, 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 don't wait that long. Call hospice when you get diagnosed with a life threatening illness just to get more information about the services that are available to you and the, and the not only physical services, but the emotional counseling services that you might take advantage of. Um, I, I hope that um, if I'm facing a life-threatening illness that I get hospice services and I actually graduate from hospice several times before I finally succumb to the final illness that'll take me to the great beyond. Um, one of my very favorite um, vignettes is Art Buchwald, who I thought was hilarious in his time, ended up going back and forth to hospice with because he was in um, kidney failure. And he was able to um, have the care that he needed in hospice to the point where he graduated and no, lo no longer needed that kind of intense 
service so that he actually went back home to his apartment in Washington, D.C., ended up going doing that a couple of times. And then the third time around, he died in hospice services. And that, to me, just represents the way hospice and palliative care services are there and available to be used um, when you when you need them the most. Um, don't um, don't go into hospice and die the next day. Because you, you know, I just want to say that that happens a lot. And Too part often. of that is the culture of the doctors treating them. And so who would know, and I'll write it in the comments in just a second, who would know that when you get your stage four cancer diagnosis, uh, America's Got Talent, she just sort of graduated from hospice and today she's cancer free, you know, but she's been, and I'm like, who knows? Right. I mean, doctors don't say those. So how can we educate others to say, you've got this diagnosis. It's sort of like when you turn 60, actually many times when you turn 55, you're eligible for AARP or whatever, and you can get a lot more discounts. So yes. you know what? Play that cancer card. Check in. You don't have to join them. You need a you need a doctor's order to even be on hospice. But at least say in case I need you. Right. And and I just have to say I I get sort of frustrated and I coach people. If you do research for your TV set and your car, you are should be doing Consumer Economic magazine for yourself. And. Yes. Check this out. So continue while I write a note. Yes, exactly. It, that's um, we take care of and we do research on so many things, but we rarely research. What about our own death? How are we going to approach that? Um, because uh, and people say, well, you never can plan. You know, you don't know how you're going to die. That's true. I don't know how I'm going to die. I would prefer dying on the dance floor. Um, just upright one minute based on the next. Likely not gonna happen because my husband hates to dance. So I'm either out there on my own, um, which could be, but more than likely, the vast majority of us will face a final illness that will take a while. So how, how am I going to approach that final illness? Uh, and what am I willing to live with? And what am I willing are unwilling to live with. Mm -hmm. As you can tell, I like to talk. So <laughs> don't put me on a ventilator, ever, never. Um, I And people are shocked at that. It's like, Dad, you, you can be off the ventilator in you know 72 hours or something. It's like, I don't even wanna be there at all, ever. Um, I made that very clear in, in my um, notes to my family of this is how mm -hmm. I am unable to tell you, this is what I expect. Um, and I, you know, never put me on a ventilator. If I fall over right now in this presentation, my husband will not um, grab 911 and 
you know, have me hold off. You got uh, about seven minutes, so don't fall over now. It would just eat up time. <laughs> um, but, you know, so so don't put me on a ventilator. Um, and I like to eat. So, I, and I like to eat the normal way. I do not want a nasogastric tube. And I don't want a feeding tube in my stomach. I want to be able to eat. If I can't eat normally, then okay. I would rather die. Um, I, I do like vehicles. So if I have to be um, using a, a wheelchair, make it motorized so I can do wheelies around the corner, you know, but that, that'll be my locomotion. That, that I can, mm -hmm. that's something that I can compromise with. That's mm -hmm. great. And, you know, just as long as I can get around or that sort of thing. But that takes some time to contemplate. And right. it's really hard to contemplate that if you were sitting in the ER with a life-threatening illness and the medical team is around you, doctors or nurses saying, we can do this, we can do this, we can do this. And your head is spinning because you, it's hard in the midst of an illness to tease all of that out. And we might be doing something for you that we think that you would love, like mm -hmm. a writer. And no, 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 no. Um, you know, another thing is I don't ever want to be coded. I don't want heroic, heroic um, action. Do not try to start my heart again. I, especially as I get older. You know, it's one thing if I was 22, um, but not not as I age, um, because the statistics for full recovery after a code in the hospital with older adults is um, far far less than what we see on television with the you know the the hospital dramas of they sure sure and then 17 minutes later they're walking out of the hospital that yeah happen. That yeah happen. yeah. Um, as a nurse who watches those shows and corrects them. <laughs> um, yes. So there's something else that you wrote, and I'd like to talk about it with in the for a couple minutes. We have about five minutes or so. So you wrote about two different things. There's advanced directives, and then there's something called pulse or My physician favorite. orders for life-sustaining treatment. Do you sort of talk about the difference between pulse and advanced directives. Yes, yes. Um, advanced directives, of course, um, we've had in existence for a long time. That's not only the decisions that you want at the end of your life, but then you're designating somebody to speak for you and make those decisions for you if you can't do that. That is, those are legal, that is a legal document. Um, and of course, when you go into the hospital, they will ask you if you have a do not resuscitate order um, and if and can give you paperwork right there and they will have that done. Um, sometimes, at least in the um, during my during my career as a nurse, I have seen medical teams um, be caught off guard by someone having a cardiac arrest and even though they might have a DNR, we go ahead and and resuscitate them. I don't want that to happen. Um, legal, um, the legal form 
isn't as powerful as the doctor's order, which is what the physician order for life-sustaining treatment is. Um, it was a, a movement that began on the West Coast, Oregon and Washington, and kind of swept across the country over the last decade and a half. Um, and that is where it's very similar to a DNR. It's a cardstock, bright, brightly colored paper. It is state by state, it is a state document, but it is something that you fill out with your physician. And so physician orders rule in, in hospitals. And so you won't have um, the, uh, the event of, oh, we're, we're overriding this, we're gonna do a cardiac and we're going to resuscitate you. Um, and that usually isn't the patient that's talking, it's, it's their parents, if it's a, a younger person or- right. Uh, spouse saying, oh, do do something, do something. And so we'll do something. We will resuscitate you. No, no, no. Um, so I, the pulse just become my very favorite thing because mm -hmm. it, it requires a number of conversations to really fill out specifically what you want um, on, in a very detailed way. But mm -hmm. as it turns out, then it's, it's, um, it's a two-sided cardstock. So it's right there. And we, we as a medical team or the healthcare team will know exactly what you designated when you were of sound mind and could communicate um, with us. So I like that so much better. They, I like both. If you have the opportunity to have both, the pulse, however, is, is specifically for those who already have a life-threatening illness or who are very frail due to ancient age. So. Oh. It's it's not. I mean, I have a pulse because I um, I insisted on it, um, and I was also a trainer to have people fill out the pulse. So I I needed to have that as my you know this is my sign. This is what this is what I want. So let's talk about what you okay. want. Um, so I want to ask uh, one quick question about pulse, and then I have one more question that maybe I'll sum up in the broadcast. Um, the question I have about pulsed is what age can you have pulsed? Um, it's not so much age driven as whether or not you have um, been diagnosed with a life limiting illness. So um, a teenager, someone under the age of 18 could actually have pulsed yes that they worked it out would their parents be able yes. to to accept that or do they take it to the court um i think i saw this on tv recently that's um, why i'm asking hopefully the parents because it uh and someone under the age of 18 um would need to have their parents um sign um mm -hmm. sign um, so in that sense that, and the conversation would be with the family about, you know, what, first of all, what does the person with the uh, life limiting illness want? And if they're 16 years old, yeah, you need your mom and dad in this conversation too, but it, okay. it could be a family thing. And it always should, no matter how old we are, our loved ones um, need to be aware and need to be part of that conversation um, so that you don't get into the whole um, you know, 
brothers versus sisters. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to do this to dad. I want to do this to dad, that kind of thing. Or, um, but especially um, parents to children who are um, below the legal age. But yes. So it, by let, thank you. Thank you for saying how parents have to get involved and all that kind of stuff. Lastly, how do you think humor plays into your expression and talking about death and dying? What do you think? How do you think humor or laughter or what is it? However you want to answer that question. Well, I want to die laughing. Um, Mary Poppins was one of my very favorite films when I was a kid and um, Uncle Edwin or I can't even remember. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Mary Poppins's uncle literally died laughing. And um, and I, that impressed me then and it still does. I, I hope that I will have the opportunity to die with a smile on my face. Well, in order to do that, I, I want to have the wherewithal to be able to still tell funny stories and have people share laughter with me um, because um, I've seen so often in hospice, funny things come up even in the darkest times. And um, like our friend, Karen Buxman, who um, has great stories of her mom's final illness with um, dementia and how they coped with it. And, you know, should I, should I buy this? If I buy this tube of toothpaste, do you think that I will still be around to finish this tube of toothpaste? And, the, and they laughed about it and things like that, just to um, even in the darkest times, um, I find laughter to be so healing um, that we still can laugh. Um, my my father-in-law um, went into hospice and um, staunch, staunch Republican. Um, but at the at the end, he was having trouble being comfortable. I could tell, and so I, um, uh, the hospice nurse and I, repositioned him on his left side. And so ah. I bent down and just whispered in his ear. I said, "I won't tell your son, my husband. I won't tell your son that you really are more comfortable on the left." And he <laughs> chuckled. He chuckled, and that was his last breath. So he died laughing and I loved to be able to bring that kind of humor to him because because um, we always talked politics. That was part of the family, you know, and um, I just thought that, OK, let's let's lighten it up here. Um, and and he went with it and then he actually went. So um, so that's Aww. trying to, you know, I'm. I'm hoping that I, I would like to have other people die laughing. And if I can be part of that, yay, I've done my job as a hospice nurse. Wow, Deb. Thank you for this time together. Uh, Kathy Westgate Heaton was watching and uh, listening. And she said, great information, Deb. I've ordered the book. Oh, uh, yeah, and Terry Corrales, I'm not saying I, your last name correctly, Terry, but he said a post is required in California for hospital and home care patients. It's bright pink and usually on the fridge so the EMTs can find it. 
Oh, fantastic. Oh, good for California. Let's yeah. start the movement. I hope it comes across the country because there's so many states who right. are in various levels, you know. Right, of, right. Oh, that's that, that's great. I love it. So we've had a few listeners and then hopefully you'll repost this and I'll repost it. And I just want to say thank you thank for you. being yeah. on on Humor, Grace and Grief today and uh, being part of the movement to not be afraid to, to be in that uncomfortable place, but be there with grace, be there with kindness, be there, just be there is the operative word. So right. thank you, Deb. I knew thank I loved you before, I love you even more. Ditto. <laughs> Ditto. All right, everybody. We'll see you next week. And uh, at the same time, same place with uh, Jill will be here. And I know we're going to be having some guests pretty soon. I apologize. She sort of schedules those things. So anyway, thanks again, Deb Price. And thanks all who joined us. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you so much, Deb.